and we've been watching this for for three years or so move from the kind of bottom of the internet as it were on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. Memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy. To take the red pill, it offers a system, it puts sense on things, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling. So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts. Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics, a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture, and with a particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode five, Who Are We? And who are we? I'm Alan Finlayson. I teach and research politics, political theory and rhetoric at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. I'm Rob Topinka, and I teach and research media and cultural studies at Birkbeck University of London. I'm Rob Gallagher, and I research digital culture at the University of East Anglia. And I'm Sophie Ludkin, a radio producer. So what are we discussing in this episode? So in this episode, we're thinking about how identity works in digital culture and digital politics. Digital technologies have opened up new ways of classifying and categorising people and new ways of performing or projecting identities online, uh, including ways of hiding our identities behind avatars or alter egos or screen names. Uh, So what does all this mean for politics? Well, these days, a lot of people will say that identity politics dominates political life. And what they mean is that as well as people talking about tax rates and energy policy, there's also various groups of people with something in common organising to defend their shared interests. But that's hardly new. Women, minority ethnic groups and others have been organising and making political demands for centuries. It seems to me that to make sense of what's going on, we need to think about identity and politics in a slightly different way. I think that what we're seeing is much more to do with individual rather than social identity, with sense of self rather than group or collective belonging, with how we understand ourselves and how we feel we have a meaningful place or role in our society. Okay, maybe we need to think about identity differently, but presumably you aren't saying that politics around racial and sexual equality, for example, aren't significant. We've already heard in previous episodes about white nationalism, about the manosphere, about the deep ideological conflicts online over questions of nature and culture, inequality and equality. Yeah, those are huge things, and we will talk about them in this episode. But as we'll also see, I think, a lot of what underpins this is actually the individualization of identity in contemporary culture. Okay, well, let's start with what students had to say about this. We asked Sophie to talk to them about identity. So I asked them, what defines your identity? Do you strongly identify with political causes or movements in line? And do you feel obliged to have to have your say? I wouldn't say I feel obliged. I think a lot of times people like, you know, try and guilt trip people on their followers into uh, be- like becoming active 
uh, like yeah active in something by being like oh if you don't post about this you're you know you're, you're part of the problem which I can understand the point of I suppose but just because someone is not wanting to post about it on social media it doesn't mean that they don't care I wouldn't say I feel obliged to um, but I do because I care so I would say personally I, I think I am pretty authentic online I mean I don't feel morally obliged but if I was just being a completely different person online it would just create like you know, I had two different people, which is just not, I don't think, healthy <laughs> for me, at least. When I feel obliged to take a stance tends to be on sort of like the serious human rights issues that um, that do come up in these kind of conversations. Um, and when I say obliged, I, I kind of mean for the sake of, uh, say, spreading awareness about that issue rather than any sort of social pressure. The whole idea is like you're posting the, the best version of yourself or that's what people like do so that's why there's a whole problem with like the link between social media and mental health and even when they're showing them like vulnerability or them having a bad day it's still a, a palatable bad day well the reason why i suppose i, I don't feel obliged is not necessarily because I, I don't care i i do and you know when i see a way to get involved i i'll well that doesn't involve necessarily posting on social media uh, i will try you know if i sign a petition about particular issue I will I will tell my friends about it when we're having discussions about it but I suppose I don't post because in a way there's so much on social media online about it seems very weird but there's almost a fatigue of um, all of the movements and it, it, it kind of feels difficult to give all of them the the attention that they deserve. I think I have multiple online identities it depends on which platform I'm using and what I'm using it for. So say Facebook, I have a lot of family and friends on there. So there's certain types of content or sites of me even that I wouldn't show on there. Same for Instagram. And I even have two different Instagram accounts. One that sort of I would let pretty much anyone follow. And then one that I only have a small group of friends follow. The, the work involved with curating your online identity is particularly interesting to me. The idea that you would need two Instagram accounts, which would also be in turn different from your Facebook account. And Instagram has responded to some of this. There's a feature where you can share with just closest friends. So there's this awareness that we have lots of different audiences in our lives and we need to manage the, shy, the sides we show them. Uh, on our on our social media platforms which maybe is still a fantasy too right you, you might be calculating your self-presentation for a particular audience but you still don't necessarily know who's going to see it and in what circumstances some interesting points there too about whether caring correlates with posting and what it would mean to really care and these questions of authenticity that came up a lot I find it quite confusing to be online sometimes. My Twitter handle has my job title prof in it, and I'm never quite sure when I'm posting on it. Am I posting as whatever private me is? Am I posting as professional me? Am I posting as the representative of an organisation? Which is it? How does it work? I'm never entirely kind of sure, and I find it quite confusing and quite difficult. Yeah, when I was uh, at university when Facebook came out, and so when Facebook first came out, it was very much a college age you know university age platform and it was loads of like drinking party pictures and like you would go on on saturday or sunday to see what the party was like the night before uh and it's a completely different platform now <laughs> like you don't i mean i suppose people still use it for that but i've almost gone silent on facebook because as, as one of the students was saying your, your family's on there now so uh, it's really hard to kind of manage who sees what as the platform changes around you but of course, one of the things about this is that if you apply for jobs or people meet you, they're probably going to 
Google you, they're going to look you up, and they're going to get to know you through that fragment of you that appears indelibly on the internet. And it can be hard to know what they'll see because those people's browsing histories and the pictures that platforms have built up on them will determine which results they get. So again, identity figures in the internet as we all navigate it and try to learn about one another. Okay, so let's step back and try and make a bit more sense of all this, what's going on and how it relates to politics. So let me try and give a little bit of the kind of, as I see it, the sort of sociological or political context for all this. I think that in societies like ours, such as the UK, social roles, ranks, expectations really are more fluid than they were in the past. And for that reason, also a lot more contested. The circumstances of your birth, who your family are, the jobs they have, where in the country you're born, whether you're male or female and so on, all that doesn't necessarily map out your life in front of you quite as rigidly or directly as it might have done in previous periods. You aren't necessarily going to learn from your parents and then take up the jobs that they had because those jobs probably won't exist in 10, 20 years' time. You aren't necessarily going to get married, have kids and work nine to five because society doesn't so heavily enforce an obligation to conform to family types and gender roles and because work and life have kind of bled into each other in complex ways. In some respects, this might be massively liberating. We aren't necessarily defined by what we do and the circumstances of our birth, but it also creates real big questions for people and a big uncertainty. How am I going to live? Who am I going to be? And at the same time, our culture tells people, especially, I think, younger people, that you can do anything. You can be anything. You just have to have passion and determination and pass your exams. And that's just simply not true. The way we organise our housing market, for instance, that's going to wreck a lot of young people's choices about how and where to live. And other people's behaviour is going to get in the way. People will judge us for not looking right, not being good looking enough, not having the social and cultural capital that other people have and hoard. Or maybe we think we have a plan for life and work and our future and then a pandemic gets in the way. Or maybe there's a change in policy. Some new government regulation about environmental impact messes things up for you. So on the one hand, we're sort of thrown into the world and told we have to invent ourselves. It's up to us to find an identity and a role and a place in society. But on the other hand, there are all these things happening over which we as individuals just have no control at all. So a society just isn't a kind of open, free space where, where we can do and be what we want. We can't see where we belong within it. And maybe we feel that nobody else can see who we really are and what we can really do. And then in the midst of all that, the internet comes along. The internet, where you can construct or acquire identities in a new way, where you can create an avatar or come up with a screen name, and where you can easily find a lot of other people who like what you like, think as you think, and so on. And they don't even have to know what you look like in real life, or where you live, or what your job is. You can join an online forum or community like Mumsnet or a car forum or a flat earth reddit group and, and you can find there a sense of purpose and a role and some sort of special status. Or you can find people online to wind up and make them feel bad and sit back and see the effects that you are having on them. So what we're talking about here is how people perform uh, and pretend and, and take up different identities online. We spoke with Mark Tudors about this. Mark researches media cultures at the University of Amsterdam, and he wrote a, a paper with his colleague Daniel Dezeo that makes this really interesting distinction between face culture and mask culture online. Here's what Mark said about mask culture on the image board 4chan. In addition to that, is happens to be a place where people use a lot of images. Uh, and they use a lot of images often 
in certain particular ways, such as, for example, uh, to signify their reaction to something, because these are discussion forums where one is constantly reacting to statements. Um, and there, these kinds of images can be thought to, well, uh, many of them are like, basically like characters and things like that. So they, there is this whole rich iconography sort of uh, of um, all of these various faces that you could think of as masks, like, of course, Pepe the Frog and many, many others. Um, and so, you know, the but 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 the probably the most famous mask is, of course, the mask of the anonymous uh, capital A uh, Guy Fox mask from some years ago. Uh, so there are many kind of, you know, masks, many ways that you can think of this kind of mask metaphor in relation to this space. And one of those ways is also in contrast to the importance of the face and the selfie within so much uh, popular social media, such as Instagram and TikTok and so forth. So the lines between face culture and mask culture can be blurry at times, but the key point here is mask culture is carnivalesque, right? It is wild, it's unpredictable, it's vengeful, it's mercurial, it's subversive. It's also fond of taking shots at face culture, which it views as narcissistic and self-important. So is, is the idea here that there's sort of a deep level cultural conflict going on about the very idea of identity, about who gets to have one and who gets to knock someone out of the identity that they're pretending or claiming to have online. Yeah, and there's also maybe something even bigger than that, which is this idea that mask culture is about reclaiming at least the idea of what the internet used to be or what it should have been, which is a space where it doesn't matter who you are, where you can be anything and do anything and learn anything, and you're not tied to your human body. You know, you're not stuck in meat space. You're in this virtual world where anything is possible. So part of the issue here, right, is, is how different platforms might uh, encourage or insist on different attitudes to identity and different ways of presenting yourself, no? Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg famously, perhaps notoriously, justified Facebook's real name policy by saying that having multiple identities online was uh, evidence of a lack of integrity. But other platforms are less prescriptive, uh, allowing for and also at times even encouraging anonymity, pseudonymity, and avatars and aliases. So it's easy to have a fake name on Twitter. Reddit is an entirely pseudonymous space. 4chan, as Mark Tudor told us, is entirely anonymous. And this really changes how discourse works on the platforms, what it means to post on those platforms. So, so Reddit is topic-driven. It's not influencer-driven. I think there's a real problem for, at least for traditional politics here, uh, for politics if we've been doing it up to now. If, if we don't know who or what is saying stuff, it's kind of hard to judge it, right? It's hard to know how sincerely it's meant, whether the system we should believe, who could actually enact the kinds of things that they're proposing. It's also super easy to exploit. On Twitter, there are clearly people pretending to be from one political faction just to make it look bad by behaving egregiously. But then people from that faction join in and start behaving like that. It's Poe's law, isn't it, that Whitney Phillips told us about in episode one. Yeah, and online, partly because of Poe's law and the, and the difficulty of assessing context, there's always accusations of authenticity and, and inauthenticity when it comes to politics. Lots of criticisms of you know, virtue signaling or uh, trying to appear you care about something when you don't really. Uh, and this is a critique the right often makes of, of liberals in the left, right? The idea that there's no such thing as altruism or ethics. There's just a desire to look good, to virtue signal, to appear to be morally superior. This idea that everyone's basically self-interested at heart, which, of course, is the way uh, right-wingers tend to think about people, right? That we're all kind of self-interested people at heart. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a really ideological argument, right? A way of ruling out any sort of principal claim about what public morality ought to be. But I can also see how it does touch on something true about what happens when public life is conducted in these spaces where it's thoroughly individualised but also commercialised. When we are online, we are, at some level, not just representing ourselves but a brand image of ourselves that's meant to attract attention and likes and so on. Well, and maybe one example that would help to bring the implications of this into focus is the black squares that flooded Instagram in June 2020. So uh, this is when protests uh, across the globe were happening about George Floyd's murder. Uh, this is when users wanted to align themselves with the Black Lives Matter movement and what was happening, um, felt that they needed to show their solidarity or maybe cynically you could say align their personal brand with this cause. Um, and many people hit upon this approach of, of posting a uh, black square on Instagram. It was meant as a gesture of solidarity, um, but for some people it meant that the uh, the hashtag BLM that was being used to share information uh, and to coordinate activism became flooded with these meaningless images. Uh, maybe people really didn't have anything to say here and maybe this is an example of the pressure to kind of align ourselves with causes um, when we don't necessarily have content to contribute to a discussion. But I think that the right does this too, right? They complain a lot about virtue signalling, but also often engage in ostentatious, you might call it, vice signalling, seeking social status and financial reward for being hostile and offensive in public, for transgressing, as we said a few times, breaking the rules, and then talking about how they're not allowed these days to say whatever it is that they just said, and acting like anybody who disagrees with them is engaging in some kind of brutal persecution. So this gets us into the question of, of what people tend to think about when they think about identity politics. In a context where people are uncertain about their place in society and in the economy, there are lots of opportunities for ideological entrepreneurs to exploit that. Yeah, you can build a politics based on the idea that a meaningful and powerful identity that you could have had has been taken away from you by them. One of the major European-wide far-right movements connected with the alt-right is the identitarians, one part of a wider phenomenon. But these are groups arguing that identity is not cultural or social, but natural. And they ought to be able to have and express this natural identity that gives them a certain status, place, belonging, perhaps rank in the world, but that everything's gone wrong because they aren't allowed to express that natural identity. Yeah, and this is one of the ironies of some of these far-right reactionary groups, which is they set themselves up as critics of identity politics, uh, critics of social justice movements that they associate with identity politics. At the same time, they're advancing their own claim for identity politics, right? It's okay to be white and to like your own kind, right? That sort of argument. Uh, offering a kind of idealized natural identity that's supposed to be grounded in science, right? And there's often the claim that the science of, of genetics proves that white people are one community, despite the fact that, you know, genetically and scientifically, this is an incoherent claim, right? White Whiteness is a is, as as everyone knows, a social construct, right? You can be British, Ukrainian, and Brazilian and, and be white but have a completely different genetic profile. But that doesn't stop some of these groups from making the argument that whiteness is this kind of natural identity that's under threat. So this is something we spoke to uh, spoke with Barath Ganesh about. Uh, Barath, who we've heard from before, researches online hate speech from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And he notes that white supremacists often present their activities not in terms of a hatred for others, but as this defiant affirmation of a white identity under threat and in need of defense. 
So the reason I was trying to understand this, right, is to understand kind of claims and processes by which kind of this idea that white people are under threat, both demographically and culturally, which we keep seeing over and over again from kind of coming from right wing politicians, uh, both sides of the Atlantic and, and in Europe and elsewhere, this kind of sense of white people are under attack, right? And I was interested in how this sense that there's this impending doom, right? Like, uh, I was trying to understand what's the kind of conceptual approach to sort of understanding how this gets constructed and how this is kind of synthesized through sort of social media and, and kind of uh, organized social movements on, on social media. And we see very similar ideas among the manosphere, this patchwork of online subcultures and communities that, as we've heard in previous episodes, shares an opposition to feminism and a desire for men to reclaim what they see as their innate and authentic masculinity that's been taken from them. Uh, and identity is only complicated for members of the manosphere because they're required to deny and suppress who they really are. So Annie Kelly, whose PhD thesis mapped the manosphere and who's written extensively about misogyny and conspiracy online, told us this. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting, often slightly unspoken paradox in lots of manosphere communities that masculinity, you know, means that you as a man, um, they often use kind of technical words like, you know, programmed to want to be dominant, to want to build things, you know, to kind of be essentially at the top of this gender hierarchy. But they also, you know, by very nature of their organizing have to say that you know this has gone wrong somewhere that isn't how things are um that women you know uh, have an unfair advantage and it is a kind of it is a you know it's a, a paradox that kind of needs an answer and i think this is often why um you see this kind of thread of conspiratorial and quite frequently sort of far-right kind of racist thought um which will kind of place the answer at you know um, the level of a conspiracy. So as we heard in the last episode, modern life can be hard, stressful, confusing, competitive. This isn't an excuse for the kind of reactionary ideologies being peddled in these spaces, but it does help to explain their appeal. And we see similar ideas circulating in so-called incel communities, where men who've reframed their inability to find sexual partners as involuntary celibacy congregate to blame feminism and social justice for their woes. For Debbie Ging, an associate professor at Dublin City University who specialises in gender, sexuality and digital media, it's possible and important to reject incel culture's misogyny while also understanding why the kinds of comfortingly rigid and simplistic answers it offers to those who follow it might be appealing to individuals in certain circumstances. One of the things that incels would kind of rail about a lot is that all they see, particularly if you're plugged into a computer pretty much all the time you know you're not really spending much time out in <laughs> the outdoors you know you're seeing and you're probably consuming huge amounts of pornography even if you don't actively try to do that it's all over their sites you, you know what you're seeing is a kind of hypersexualization of femininity all the time and this is you know this is very much kind of offshoot of post-feminist culture i think also this return to biological essentialism men are from Mars, women are from Venus, all of that kind of exploding self-help market, which really, you know, dug into the area of gender and pushed us back a good 20 or 30 years, I would say, in, in kind of ero eroding or erasing social constructionist theories of gender 
uh, and returning to to this men are from Mars, women are from Venus um, logic. Again, that makes it much easier to come in with these evolutionary psychology uh, ideas about men and women. Of course, the whole thing is, you know, expressly heteronormative um, as well. And so that's another big factor, I think, is that the kind of rhetoric of post-feminism, of, of girl power, you know, even those this argument that you see in the manosphere a lot, you know, that women are gold diggers. It does come from, to some extent, they're using evolutionary psychology to support that argument. But those image, that imagery was rife in popular culture already. So we've also spoken in previous episodes to Becca Lewis, who researches digital media at Stanford University in California. And she's traced their networks of what she calls the alternative influencers who have amassed huge fan bases by pushing the kinds of ideas that David Ging is talking about there. But it's not just endorsements by right-wing micro-celebrities that have made these concepts popular. For Becca, it's also important to acknowledge how they serve as a basis for the construction of community and collective identities. I think that there's a real... Um, so there's the, the celebrity aspect of it that I focus on, and then I think there's the related aspect of social networking and the community that that brings you. And I think, you know, what, what you're referencing there taps into that as well, that, you know, we all together understand the way that the world is and you can be friends with us and kind of share in these uh, ideas with us. And for people that might be kind of lonely or feeling disillusioned in various ways or struggling at various points in their life, that is incredibly appealing too. And so I think the, the mixture of that celebrity culture and the social networking and community building that happens is a really potent mixture. Debbie Ging expands on this idea, right, that online communities, like, for example, those that make up the manosphere, can be particularly appealing to individuals who feel isolated, who feel misunderstood. And she also notes that the design of digital technologies can help foster this sense of, of belonging and collective identity. And that's one thing the red pill does, right? It takes you out of one false reality and puts you into the authentic reality with the other people who've also taken the red pill, and suddenly you find yourself part of a community. To, you know, to take the red pill, it offers a kind of a, a system, it puts sense on things, it, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling that have nothing to do with this, arguably, but uh, it, it, it can give you a sense of order and also then a sense of community. And a lot of these things, this kind of sense of community, validation, are facilitated by the technological affordances of social media, you know, getting lots of likes, having your memes shared, uh, etc. This kind of circle jerk stuff that goes on, you know, you're constantly just kind of repeating popular things within your echo chamber. And this gives you status and validation, which you presumably feel that you're not getting or maybe you genuinely aren't getting from anywhere else. So is this all about breaking with the individualism of dominant culture, exemplified in some ways by face culture sites like Instagram and finding a community? Or is it about reasserting the right to look out for number one and be more selfish? Well, maybe a bit of both. It's, it's complex and different figures, factions and subcultures within the right handle these questions differently. As Annie Kelly told us, in fact, these tensions have played out in feuds between different figures in the manosphere, for example. I definitely think really, you know, that kind of feud I talked about between Rushvi and Elam, that almost really was what it came down to in the end, because 
both of them were sort of saying, you're controlled by women, no, you're controlled by women sort of thing. But actually, that was almost what the argument was really about, right? It was an individualist versus kind of collective action argument, uh, which you kind of see um, in almost any kind of political advocacy movement. But one thing that I found really interesting about that was how both of them really wanted to be clear that actually they were still advocating for individual self-help. It was almost as if they both found kind of collectivism sort of like slightly kind of tainted by its association with left-wing progressive movements. And I think this is quite an interesting reflex that you see quite a lot of the time in uh, reactionary kind of spaces or anti-progressive spaces is uh, a kind of... Uh, an impulse towards kind of individualist thinking. But also I think there's kind of like slight, slight kind of like jealousy or almost envy of kind of leftist solidarity movements and a kind of desire to replicate that without actually having ever having to do any of those kind of, yeah, I suppose any of that kind of like solidarity building, which they find sort of tainted almost by its association with things like feminism and uh, LGBT rights or any other kind of... Um, yeah, sort of identity politics, I suppose. And as we'll hear in our episode on conspiracy theories, it's not just men who are attracted to the idea of rigid gender roles, right? There are many women, too, who are pining for a time when men were men and women were women. Uh, you probably won't find many of the women on incel forums. Maybe you're more likely to encounter them on Instagram. Uh, there's very different aesthetics, very different performances of femininity, but they tend to reference similar ideas, right? There's this envy and suspicion of progressive movements that Annie Kelly was telling us about a desire to claim identity and autonomy without having to use this sort of tainted language of feminism. But there's another aspect of this that we haven't properly talked about yet. And that's the fact that all of this is taking place on digital platforms that are commercial platforms, particularly in face culture, right? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so on. And they have a whole other interest in our identity. And that is to collect our personal data, to build profiles uh, that can be used by the platforms and also the advertisers they sell the data to, uh, and not to mention by security agencies and political campaigns. This is something we talked to Hugo Leal about. Hugo researches digital disinformation at the Mindaroo Center for Technology and Democracy at Cambridge. And as he emphasizes, harvesting data about user identities is the bedrock on which companies like Google and Facebook are built. So... 98% of Facebook's revenue is publicity. This publicity is us, okay? It's our data. There's no other way uh, Facebook can do business. And I even contest Facebook's qualification as big tech, for example, because there's no tech involved there. I, I was checking their submissions for patents and they, they did not appear in the 31st companies submitting patents in the US in 2020, for example, I think they are 38 or 39. Plus the patents they submit are very, very creepy. It's all about tracking our lives. It goes from tracking our our daily lives to predicting uh, when we are going to die or if we have suicidal tendencies. So of course, none of what Hugo is talking about here would be possible without us. Because in one sense, we work for these platforms, right? We help them build audiences. And they give us the metrics built in, how many followers, how many likes, how many views or subscriptions. And that sort of feedback from the platforms uh, and from the responses we get to our posts encourages users to develop self-branding strategies, right? To perform versions of themselves that align with the tastes and politics of their audiences. So it, it, it seems to me that we might think of it 
like, like this way. We used to be most identified by the roles we had producing things, our jobs, our work, what we made. The consumer society put an emphasis on identifying people through what they consumed. And people used consumption as a way to express themselves and shape their social and even personal identity. People could be defined not only by their work, but by their tastes, what they ate, the clothes they wore, the music they danced to or refused to dance to. But now something else is happening. Our identity is now something we produce to be consumed. Right. On social media, we're potentially visible to huge audiences. And this encourages users to see everything they do, from a new haircut to where they went on holiday, but also social causes or political controversies as a branding opportunity, a chance to project certain values. And even if they don't mean it to be, even if they're really trying to share something that they truly, truly deeply care about, it still becomes a currency flowing through the networks of digital platforms. Even racism and misogyny, they are commercially viable ways for new kinds of entrepreneur to make a living. This is something Mark Tudor stresses, right? If the anonymous hordes of mass culture can rebrand extremist right-wing views as irony and trolling, so individuals who, who borrow these terms and talking points from these spaces can draw attention to themselves. It's a high-risk strategy, but one that can be effective, at least for a while. And that happened through a number of factors that, including, I think, importantly, the opportunistic actors, either operating kind of surreptitiously uh, because it's these are anonymous spaces so you know you don't know who's uh, there or very much in the mold of the sort of micro celebrity social media pundit of which there were a great great many uh, that emerged on Twitter and on YouTube over the course of the last five year, years or so um, who burned hot and bright and many of them got kind of deplatformed at a certain point and who used very strategically elements of this culture to sort of brand and position themselves and contributed in so doing to a to the to the creation or construction of this reactionary turn. So we've heard a lot this episode about all of the different factors that come into us trying to answer who are we. So how do we answer that? Well, we start with the point that identity is difficult these days. Our social role is unclear. Our future is hard to look into. At the same time, digital technologies offer novel ways to experiment with and to develop identities, uh, including to role play and perform. Uh, we can project a version of ourselves on face culture sites, but we can also wear a range of different masks. And that means that you can turn politics into a personal brand and, and vice versa. I think one of the great appeals of the more reactionary groups that we've been studying is that they offer an easy solution to identity questions. They argue that certain natural and authentic identities are under threat, but they do so using techniques developed by online influencers of all kinds, exploiting ways of inventing identity that are baked into the platforms, reflecting the logic of individualism that so characterises those platforms in our culture, while expressing a desire for collective belonging. So reactionary groups reject social justice movements and their demands for concrete changes linked to the interests of social groups, whether that's feminism, civil rights, gay liberation. But reactionary groups have also embraced identity politics of race and gender and personal sense of selfhood. But the key to their claim is that it's all natural. They're not being political. They're just enforcing and following the categories uh, proven by science. Remember, Ben Shapiro told us, facts don't care about your feelings. 
But of course, the reality is it's all about playing on people's feelings of alienation, rootlessness, and resentment. I mean, it's, it's all about feelings. So maybe we need to think about this more. Uh, people online are playing a version of themselves. They're crafting an identity, whether it's individual or collective, in part through aesthetics, styles, iconographies, and so on. Um, and in the next episode, we're going to be taking a look at that and asking the question, what does politics online look like? On this episode of Reaction with Digital Politics, you've been listening to... My name is Mark Tudors. My name is Bharat Ganesh. My name's Annie Kelly. I'm Debbie Ging. My name is Becca Lewis. My name is Uglial. And thanks also to our students, Gareth, Dom, James, Lisa, Lauren, Max and Luke. You also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. Me, Rob Topinka. Me, I'm Finlayson. And me, Sophie Ludkin. The music was composed by Harriet Riley and produced by Tom Jacob. Production of this podcast was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, University of East Anglia and Birkbeck University of London. Like, subscribe, share, retweet, etc. 